Hello there, podcast listener. Amber Noel here. It's my turn to be a listener now. I would love to hear your thoughts about the podcast. The Living Church, as you might know, is a nonprofit communications ministry with a heart for Christian unity, especially in the Anglican Communion. And we want to keep our mission sharp in all we do, including the podcast, and have fun, obviously. But would you write to me and let me know how we're doing? What's the podcast doing for you? Is it making a difference in your thinking, your ministry, your prayer life, your daily walk with your golden doodle? Do you have some hot takes on what we could do better? I want to hear it all. I might even read your comments on the next episode. There are so many great podcasts out there. I want to do more of what The Living Church is here to do and less of what it's not. So there are two things you can do to help. First, make sure you're following us from a podcast platform, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Find us on the page and click follow. The second thing you can do is email me, ambernoel at livingchurch.org. Share with me a thing or two you've gotten from the podcast over the years. And if you want, include something we might do better. Help us stay not just a great podcast, but on mission. Follow us, email me, A-M-B-E-R-N-O-E-L at livingchurch.org. I can't wait to hear from you. I think one of the things to remember that these leaders in the 19th century stood up for these ideas at the cost sometimes of their life. The seeds were planted there. And if you keep watering it and it keeps growing and growing and growing, you see that it works. We have a mission as a church to speak out about a middle way toward welcome, toward justice, and toward freedom. The Living Church, serving the Episcopal Church and the Anglican Communion since 1878. Welcome to the Living Church Podcast. Hello, faithful Living Church Podcast listeners. Happy continued season of Epiphany and happy Black History Month to listeners in the U.S. Now tell me, what is more important, unity or justice? If it's first thing in the morning you're listening to this, you're like, Amber, let me have a cup of coffee first. And maybe you're hearing this and you say, no, 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 there is no contradiction there between unity and justice, theologically speaking. What they actually are are both elements of God's reign. And you're right. Still, we often find ourselves every day making these choices. Which is better for us to do right now? To make things right, to tell the truth, or to get along, and to avoid fights? Anyone who has been at a family holiday meal might ask that question, but perhaps a church or even a nation are something like family writ large. Today, we're traveling back in time with the Reverend Dr. Brant Montgomery and the Right Reverend R. William Franklin to look at some influential figures from the Episcopal past, John Henry Hobart and the founders of St. James School in Maryland, and how they influenced the shapes of political engagement of Anglicans in the United States. And we'll examine the choices that they made that encouraged justice and flourishing among God's people, especially among Black Anglicans, or not, and mistakes they made that, however clear or unclear they were at the time, we can now see in retrospect. And what can we learn from them? One interesting pattern that we'll trace from the 19th century to today is the high church Anglican habit of reserve. Not rocking the boat, seeing how things play out, emotional reserve, which often includes a strategy of gradualism or reticence when it comes to social justice. 
How do you balance social justice with a peaceful or coherent community life, especially when the topics at stake are controversial ones? Is it a matter of balance at all? Or is it some other kind of equation that we're working with? Together, Father Brandt and Bishop Franklin will examine this speckled history as it plays out in these leaders' responses to social ills and evils, especially those that affect Black Americans, from slavery to civil rights. And oh yeah, what do the Anglo-Catholics have to do with all this? I know some of you are already talking back to me. What about the Anglo-Catholic movement? Yes, yes, we'll go there. And a quick note about today's episode. It was recorded in 2022, and so there are some references to current events of the time that may have developed since the episode was recorded. Bishop Bill Franklin is assisting bishop in the Episcopal Diocese of Long Island. He was previously Bishop of Western New York, and he's also served, among other places, at St. Paul's Within the Walls in Rome as Associate Director of the American Academy in Rome and as Associate Priest of the Anglican Center in Rome. He also served as Dean of Berkeley Divinity School at Yale, as a professor at the General Theological Seminary in New York and at St. John's University in Minnesota. Father Brant Montgomery is the chaplain of St. James School in Hagerstown, Maryland, having previously served as the chaplain of Ascension Episcopal School in Lafayette, Louisiana, and curate at Canterbury Episcopal Chapel and Student Center at the University of Alabama in Tuscaloosa. He is a trumpet player and profound lover of jazz, as well as a scholar of American religious history, Episcopal church history, the Oxford Movement and Anglo-Catholicism, and the Civil Rights Movement. Last but not least, our interviewer today is the Reverend Mark Michael, who is our editor and interim executive director here at The Living Church. Now ready the horses and hold on to your garters. We are headed 200 years back into history to see what we can learn for today. We hope you enjoy the conversation. It's delightful to have you with us, Bishop Franklin. Great. Great to be with you. And and Father Montgomery, welcome to the Living Church Podcast. And thank you very much, Father Michael. I, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Thank you. Wonderful. Let's start by having each of you tell me a little bit about your background and what has drawn you to the study of the history of the Episcopal Church. Well, I grew up in, in Mississippi, and I, I came north to college, to Northwestern in Chicago, where I wrote my undergraduate thesis on Bishop Grafton and his work with Belgian immigrants into eastern upstate Wisconsin. So already I was working on Anglo-Catholicism and parishes and social issues. And then I went on to Harvard and my PhD was studies of the Oxford Movement parishes and their attitude towards social justice but also Roman Catholic movements, the revival of Benedict monasticism and Johann Adam Müller. And then I've gone on and on my whole career as both historian and bishop working on these issues. So I've lived it as well as studied it. And, and for you, Father Montgomery? I came into the Episcopal Church as a student in the seventh grade at, at an Episcopal school in my hometown of Tadig, Alabama. And so with that, that was the beginning of my love of God through the Episcopal Church. And I became a very serious historian of the church when I was at General Seminary. I had written my MDiv thesis in the area of church history, primarily on um, Charles Colcock Jones Carpenter, who was the Bishop of Alabama during the Civil Rights Movement, and his gradual racial philosophy, how he came to espouse that view. And um, it was 
very widely talked about in several circles on the diocese. I'm glad I was able to make some sort of contribution to that study. And I completed my doctor of ministry degree at the University of the South recently, and that was a historical review, a historical development of how diversity, equity, and inclusion here at St. James School of Maryland came about. And it directly dealt with issues of the high church and Anglo-Catholic traditions and how they dealt with that through the principle of reserve and how that has affected the school today going forward. So that's how I've come about through this. And it's become, you know, a joy to engage in this sort of work, historical work. Fascinating. So, I mean, part of what unites you is that you have, you've deeply engaged in this as a scholarly project, but you're also living out your vocations as within this high church tradition of Anglicanism. So if it's a critique, I think it's a loyal critique. And it's a critique (laughs) that hopes to make this tradition achieve its full potential. So that's that's, that's wonderful. So you have both written recently about leaders and institutions from the Episcopal Church's high church or Anglo-Catholic wings who failed to respond decisively to the social challenges of their time, particularly around issues of racial justice. Bishop Bill wrote recently about the great 19th century Bishop John Henry Hobart and Father Montgomery about St. James School in Maryland. Can you tell us a little bit more of the stories? Maybe you could speak first, Bishop Franklin, about Hobart and the ways that they the challenges they faced and and how they failed to meet, perhaps, from our perspective, the challenges of the time? Well, I got involved in this project of studying Bishop Hobart because this is the 200th anniversary of the founding of Hobart College in, in Western New York. And our presiding bishop is a graduate of Hobart College, and he asked me to work with the college on the figure of John Henry Hobart, who founded the college, the college's name for him, And in my view, Bishop Hobart is the greatest leader of the Episcopal Church in the 19th century. And I served as Bishop of Western New York. So that gave me a a deep understanding of the culture and the people of Western New York. And I have spoken a number of times at Hobart College. The issue is that Hobart, on the one hand, was this great figure. He helped redefine the ecclesiology, the theology of the Episcopal Church, that we're not a state church we would have disappeared. We were on the wrong side of the American Revolution. But we're a church of the people, perfectly fitted to America, a democracy in which the people elect and the clergy elect the bishops and the representatives, delegates, deputies to general convention, and which the Episcopal Church must be a Catholic church in that it not only Catholic in our theology, but Catholic in the wideness of the boundary of reaching out to all the people. So Hobart became the the assisting bishop of New York in 1811 and then bishop in 1816. He lived until 1830. He literally worked himself to death to build this image of a church of the people welcoming all people going all over New York State by horseback, by coach, by Erie Canal barge, all the way to Buffalo. And he finally, he succumbed to the weather. <laughs> and I'm speaking today when about five feet of snow is about to hit Buffalo. So you can imagine that man in the 1820s going everywhere to spread the Catholic good news of Jesus Christ. 
he was not only building a church of the people, but he felt that the Episcopal Church was a bulwark against the Great Awakening, the evangelical tradition, which said that you needed to have a conversion experience to be a Christian, to be in relationship with Jesus. And so he had he preached three freedoms. One, that you didn't have to have a conversion experience. Number two, that you did not have to sign an elaborate theological document. And number three, that you could enjoy the good things of life, like a glass of wine occasionally, or sports, or all sorts of beauties of God's world. So it was a wonderful vision of expansion and leading. And he worked hard to welcome the Black population into the Episcopal Church, consecrating the first Black church of the Episcopal Church in New York State, St. Philip's Church, and consecrating, ordaining the first Black priest, Peter Williams. Also inviting the Native Americans in, having the Book of Common Prayer translated into the Oneida language, building a church in Oneida in North North City, up in the upper part of New York State, and inviting hundreds and hundreds of Native Americans into our church. This is the positive side. But the negative side is that he would not let his Black congregation attend the Dawson Convention. So he was a segregationist when it came to his time. He would not speak out publicly against slavery because he did not believe that the church should be involved in political issues. And he was also stood along the side and did nothing to stop the the forced migration of Native American Episcopalians out to Wisconsin. So still, I would say that he planted a seed in, in those missions to Native Americans, to the small towns, and to the Black community. He planted a seed that has evolved into our embracing all people in the Episcopal Church. And it is no accident, I think, that our first Black presiding bishop, Michael Curry, is a graduate of Hobart College. And I believe Bishop Curry has lived into the Hobartian tradition himself in his ministry. And yet, there are question marks. There are questions we can raise. Right. And Father Montgomery, do you see similar similarities here with the story that you've researched about St. James? I do see some similarities. And um, the similarity where I see between what Bishop Franklin just said and where I've done my research comes through the individual of William Rawlinson Whittingham. William Rawlinson Whittingham was the fourth bishop of Maryland. He was born in 1805, taught at General Theological Seminary. He taught church history there um, and then was elected bishop of Maryland in 1840 and served as bishop of Maryland all the way until his death in 1879. And so he was bishop of Maryland for 39 years. And during that time, one of his grand achievements was founding St. James School of Maryland, which was then the College of St. James and the Grammar School. And so, um, but one thing about Bishop Whittingham was that he was also one of the chief disciples, if you will, of Bishop Hobart. Um, One of the things that I found out when I was researching Bishop Whittingham was that he was very much like a surrogate son, if you will, of Bishop Hobart. There's a, there was a very interesting story that Bishop Whittingham, when he was 10 years old, he wanted to be confirmed in the Episcopal Church. His rector thought that he was too young at the time, but Bishop Whittingham appealed directly to Bishop Hobart at 10 years old. <laughs> and, and, and Bishop Hobart examined him in the catechism and said, this, this kid's pretty good. He's pretty 
pretty well prepared. And so he confirmed them. And so as a result of that, they became very good friends. And a lot of what Bishop Franklin had said, you could see a lot of those same, same things happen again and again and just come through um, Whittingham's ministry. He very much was whole body to the core. And I would say that a lot of what Bishop Franklin was talking about, Bishop Whittingham helped institute in regards to St. James School, but in a academic way. Bishop, Bishop Whittingham was a solidly high church traditionalist in his time. And like Bishop Hobart did, he planted seeds, if you will. Bishop Whittingham was very devoted to evangelizing African-Americans throughout his diocese in the pre-Civil War days. He would oftentimes take time during visitations to catechize African-Americans himself in the faith on their way to being confirmed. He took that very seriously. And he really believed in that whole body and synthesis that the apostolic succession was very important, that the Book of Common Prayer was the standard Anglican rule of faith, and the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist, that those were the sacraments to which we could feel the grace of God really being infused within us. So he advocated all of that. But just as Bishop Hobart did some good things but had some hang-ups, Bishop Whittingham did. Just like his mentor Hobart Whittingham refused to speak out against, at that time, you know, slavery, the issue of slavery. And when the southern states were seceding, Bishop Whittingham felt that that was not right because he felt that the United States government was the legal authoritative government of the land and that this was very much not right for them to do. Um Bishop Whittingham also did not allow African-American parishes and African-American clergy to have seat, voice, and vote in the Dawson Convention. Most notably, St. James African Episcopal Church in Baltimore, where presiding Bishop Curry was the rector before he became Bishop of North Carolina. Bishop Whittingham wouldn't let him be at Dawson Convention because he felt that if they were there, that would further divide the church. And as a high churchman, he did not want to be a cause for division. And so like Bishop Hobart did years ago, Bishop Whittingham, in a way, had a lot of these hangups. So he planted seeds and he planted seeds within, you know, the students here at St. James to, um, you know, go out and to be, you know, those people that they should be in the world. But yet there were some hangups there. And you trace this tendency beyond the time of Bishop Whittingham, right? You, you yes, exactly. looked at this, this tendency toward a, a very cautious approach to social justice issues through the rest of the 19th century on into the 20th century. Um, a couple of days ago, we had a solemn even song in memory of Bishop Whittingham here at St. James. And I mentioned that in 1869, when the school was refounded, Bishop Whittingham found himself increasingly um, as one of the last vestiges of the old high church generation. Um, because beginning at that time, the Anglo-Catholics were beginning to take over. Those who were advancing, you know, the principle of advanced ceremonial to teach the theology of the high church tradition that they too believe, but trying to teach it to the people in a way that they would understand. Bishop Whittingham felt that that was a little too much. And so he actually didn't like that. And so when the school was refounded in 1869, he hired a headmaster who came from an old high church family. It was, it was Henry Yon, whose uncles were, you know, both the bishops, Andradonk of Pennsylvania and New York, solidly old school high churchmen. And so because of that, you know, that tendency of reserve, of gradualism became infused in St. James. And it really wouldn't begin 
to go in a way that it should be until the hiring of Father Jack Owens as headmaster in 1954. But I think Father Brand has mentioned the date 1869 with regard to St. James. I need to say that the Diocese of New York did not integrate its diocesan convention until after the Civil War, until 1869-1870. So think of there was that whole period. However, as the High Church Hobartian movement evolved into the Anglo-Catholic movement, was in the Diocese of New York, the successor of Hobart's movement. Churches like the Church of the Transfiguration, the first Anglo-Catholic parish in New York City in 1848, started inviting Black members into their church. So Transfiguration was an integrated church in which Black communicants and others were baptized. In fact, next to the baptistry was a stained glass window of the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. Okay, so that was 1855. And then in 1863, when there were the Civil War draft rides in New York City, and the white population was rioting because they didn't want to be drafted, Black people came inside Transfiguration, and the priest, Father Houghton, the founder of the church, stood with the cross at the door of the church, and, and he said, out, you devils, meaning the white mob that was trying to come in and kill the members of his parish. So this evolves into heroic tradition, which is part of the Anglo-Catholic movement, which both of us have studied, that Anglo-Catholicism at its core has always so often been a part of social justice, not something to decide, but really bringing the sacramental life, preaching, the community, beautiful worship, to people of all classes and all sectors. And I think I see this already rooted in Bishop Hobart. He didn't live to see the Oxford movement, the Anglo-Catholic revival. He influenced mm-hmm. Newman and Pusey and others at the very, very beginning. But this is part of our heritage. And let me make one point more, and then Father Brent may want to comment on this. Mm-hmm. Hobart was a young man when he was doing this. He was, or he was consecrated bishop when he was 36. That gave him the energy to go all over the state and be an apostle, a missionary, exactly what a bishop should be doing. And he saw preaching as one of his important methods of this, that old tradition. Well, if you're too excited as an Anglican preacher, you're not showing you really are an Episcopalian. Mm -hmm. He couldn't stop being joyful about Jesus and preaching (laughs) Jesus. And so his motto was evangelical truth and apostolic order. And I think that is a motto for the Episcopal Church still today. Right. And I would definitely agree with what Bishop Franklin said. And I could see another connection here with another one of St. James's founders that I wrote very extensively on, and that was William Augustus Muhlenberg. Muhlenberg, before you know, he went on to found institutions, I believe he founded St. Luke's Hospital in New York in a very good retirement community where I think he was buried at at the time that he died. But before that, a, a lot of people don't realize that Muhlenberg was a very effective church educator. And and he is considered to be the father of Episcopal church schools. And the movement that he started was the church school movement. And, um, you know, Muhlenberg really did believe that, you know, that the Episcopal church had this call upon it. And Whittingham shared this, that the church had a duty to raise up its young people in the faith and to teach them in the ways that it should go. Muhlenberg believed that that the church should stir one's heart toward doing good. And so he put the principles 
of the church school that he embodied within, you know, an academic model that the church could put forward. Now, the one thing about Muhlenberg, though, even though a lot of his views were very similar to the high church tradition, Muhlenberg did not call himself a high churchman. He would not have called himself a high churchman. He called himself an evangelical Catholic. But I found that a lot of his evangelical Catholic views, the school basically as an extension of the body of Christ into the world, the the church in an academic mode, and the community of the school being a representative entity of how we should be and how we should reflect the diversity of all people, that was largely, you know, shared by Anglo-Catholics coming along years later. And so we here at St. James, one of the things that makes us the distinct school that we are in the Anglo-Catholic tradition is that we continue to hold to that original model that people like William Augustus Muhlenberg and William Rawlinson Whittingham and our first headmaster, John Barrett Kerfoot, had kept it because of the fact, as we've been going back and forth with themes here, the seeds were planted there. And if you keep watering it and it keeps growing and growing and growing, you see that it works. And so that's where we are today. Did you know that a donation of just a couple hundred bucks to The Living Church will fund the production of this episode you're listening to right now, or any episode of The Living Church Podcast? Look, if you've been enjoying this podcast, say, for a year or more, consider sending The Living Church a donation of whatever size. TLC has been a ministry to the Episcopal Church and Anglican Communion since— 1878, you could probably finish it for me by now, equipping and informing church leaders and also serving as an instrument of fellowship and unity among Anglicans and other Christians in this great, big, one holy Catholic apostolic Christian family. You can go to livingchurch.org and click donate to give now or hit up the link in the show notes today. So so part of what I'm hearing and what both of you are saying, and, and you also mentioned earlier, Father Montgomery, Father John Owens, who really brought about this, was the catalyst for a real change on these issues, is that the high church movement and the Anglo-Catholic movement, there's a lot of similarity in terms of theological teaching, emphases in devotion and, and liturgy. There is a difference in the way that they interpret the church's role in the world, and maybe the degree to which the church should be active in ways in the political sphere. Right. And I'm, I'm right. curious if, you know, one of the things that that you mentioned at the very outset, Bishop Franklin, was the challenges of the Episcopal Church kind of finding its feet after the American Revolution. To what degree do you think the Episcopal Church began to fit into American society in a different way that enabled this shift in, say, the register of political engagement? Well, I think we we began to grow because we were the alternative to the evangelical Second Great Awakening. This, the upstate New York was called the Burnt Over District because there were revivals everywhere. People were moving toward this emotional form of Christianity. And he presented us as an alternative to that, an alternative that, for example, took science seriously and education seriously. He founded Hobart College for the, the, that district, the Burnover District, to form leaders for fa- small-town America who would be patriotic but believe in the Catholic tradition of our church 
and believe in an educated form of Christianity. And it's so interesting, we're talking here of a lot of about educational institutions founded by Hobart and this movement. General Theological Seminary, Hobart <laughs> College, St. James School, we could go. That has been a mark of our church, a, an, an educated form of Christianity that takes science seriously. Mm-hmm. And that was a very important theme of the Lambeth Conference of Anglican Bishops this summer, that we are a form of Christianity that values science. And we know there are voices in our American life that don't believe that. We mm-hmm. must be apostles of this form of Christianity today, just as Hobart. So all of these things were attractive to the American public. Right. We, we began to grow, double, triple, quadruple our membership. And then we even grew farther after the Civil War. So God blessed us, I think, with these leaders who were able to adapt the monarchical English tradition of Anglicanism to a democracy and to a form of our church that embraced the whole of the population. Right. And and, and I would like just, just to speak just a little bit about how Father Owens, who became headmaster, in 1955 and served until 1984. He served for 29 years. I would just like to speak about how he was able to really transition um, St. James from, you know, that old school Oxford movement model to the Anglo-Catholic model. Because when he was hired as headmaster in 1955, he had been the first ordained headmaster that the school had had since John Bear Kerford, our first headmaster. And he, he really was you know, a solidly Anglo-Catholic clergy person. And Father Owens was this person who really believed that, you know, it's it's one thing to say that we believe this and that we espouse this, but that he really put it into practice. So Father Owens, from stories that I hear from alumni who knew him, they say that he really was somebody who preferred to act instead of just say. And so because of Father Owens's I mean, staunch Anglo-Catholicism. He was a supporter of the civil rights movement back in the day. He helped integrate St. James in the 70s. If he was able to, he would have done it a lot sooner, I think. And he also brought co-education to St. James in the late 70s and the early 80s. And so, you know, as it says in the 175th anniversary history of St. James that just came out a couple of years ago, in a lot of ways, we still are Father Owens's school because who we are at St. James today, Jack Owens really helped bring it about. And so we have a lot to be indebted to him for that. But, you know, again, I think Father Owens is a good example of how, you know, people who stand in this tradition that Hobart started all these years ago, they've just taken the seeds that have been planted and have just watered it and God has given the growth of it all. I think one of the things to remember that these leaders in the 19th century really stood up for these these ideas at the cost sometimes of their life. In 1834, St. Philip's, the first Black Episcopal church in New York State, was burned down in a riot, again, because they had a priest who was in the abolitionist society, Peter Williams. He was a member of the abolitionist society. So Black priests advocating that cause left, left led to a burning church. So These heroic figures of the 19th century should inspire us today as our country is divided. We have a mission as a church to follow their example, to speak out to what the Catholic tradition of Christianity, as understood by Anglicanism, has to tell us 
about a middle way toward welcome, toward justice, and toward freedom. All of those themes of John Henry Hobart. Right. I, I think bringing up division in the way that you did, Bishop Franklin, is a helpful segue to a question that I think is still very relevant to church leaders today. I mean, we're living, as you said, in a time of intense partisan divide. Someone described politics to, to me recently as a kind of taking a total war approach. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we've seen things in the past few weeks, like the husband of the Speaker of the House being right. assaulted. Um, that makes my sort of, you know, 1850s alarm bells go off about this kind of thing happening <laughs> in the floor of Congress, right? So the question is, and, and you spoke about this, Father Montgomery, in your paper about St. James School, that leaders were often saying things like, well, you know, I would like to move things faster in terms of moving the school toward a, a more just, integrated future. But they would they would say, but if we get too political, it's going to destroy community life. That for a community to work, and you know, a school, the community balance of a boarding school is a pretty delicate thing. Exactly. For this community life to work, we're going to have to set some things over on this side and say we're just not going to talk about those things. And so the question I have is, you know, for a pastor today who wants to take the lead on an issue of social justice. Will that destroy community life, or how can you do that in a way that will not impact community life in a negative way? And what might these leaders have to show us about that? Well, I would say for that is that we would have to keep the conversation going. One of the things that I am privileged to do here at St. James in my role as chaplain is that I co-chair the school's Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committee. I co-chair that with our associate headmaster and academic dean. And we have been able to do a lot of good work through that committee. Like, for instance, one of the first things that we did was that we helped the board of trustees who ultimately approved a diversity statement that the school had never had before. Um, That was a very strong recommendation that was made to us by our accreditation body at our last visit with them. And they said, we really encourage you to do this. And we did this. And it was a statement that the board largely liked. And they approved it. First time we've ever had such a statement. And so that was very good. We've had a community conversation contract whereby the students, the faculty, and everybody else involved you know, agree, like when we encounter, you know, subjects that are difficult to talk about, that we are going to abide by these certain standards where we're going to respect each other's dignity and, you know, approach this in an orderly, in a calm, but yet a respectful way. And there have been some other things that we have been able to do, but that's just because of the fact that we have been able to keep the conversation going and, you know, keep it, keeping it going in a way where we invite all constituencies into the conversation, not leaving anybody out and not giving the impression that we want to leave on anybody out. And that's a testament to our current headmaster on that. He is very much committed to every constituency of the school having buy into this. And because when a couple of years ago, when you had the unfortunate and heinous killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and, and all that happened. Some of the alumni, you know, you know, they were a little bit concerned about, you know, how talk of diversity could potentially change the culture, the traditional culture of the school. And our headmaster, you know, right this and I support him on this, that talking about such issues, this is tradition. This is part of our tradition because Jesus himself talked about these things. And so 
issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, this has always been part of our tradition. And so we're just living into that. And we've seen some good successes from that. I would say that even though Hobart and his the people of his time faced this challenge of being on our church being on the wrong side of the revolution, they believed that the Episcopal Church was the best way forward for the Christianity in the United States. And one of his followers once said, the Episcopal Church really is as though you would take the dome of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and put it together with the dome of the United States Capitol. The mm. Catholic tradition, the dome of St. Peter's, the Capitol, the, the democratic tradition, putting them together, you get this ideal, which Hobart believed was the ideal of the early church. The people mm. spoke in the small communities of the early church. There were bishops. The apostolic succession is crucial. And yet we are a form of Christianity that is also adaptable to new circumstances. And he said the Episcopal Church was the best hope of America. And I believe that's true today. And I think we, right. I think Father Brent would, 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 despite our failures and faults, would agree with me on that. I, I would agree with you on that. Definitely would agree with you on that. And I think that's a very good picture that you painted there. And that, you know, I can see that definitely here at St. James, because St. James, we are a school that's, that makes it abundantly clear that we are an Episcopal school within the Anglo-Catholic tradition and that this is how we live into this. But yet at the same time, because of the fact we are an Anglo-Catholic school, we really emphasize that Anglo-Catholic nature that, you know, causes to be open to other people. And so particularly a lot of our international students, their parents, when they send their students to us for us to help form them, they always remark about how they are very appreciative for the openness that we have toward them. They said, we're clear about who we are, but yet it's not so much in a way that it shuts off anybody. And so they really are appreciative of that and they see the good that we're trying to do. So I really do believe in what Bishop Franklin said, and it's very good. I just really believe that the vision still works. It still works. So to, to look at this, another angle here, we look back on these church leaders in the 19th century, and we say, you know, how could you not have preached against slavery? How could you not have allowed Black clergy and delegates to participate in diocesan convention? How can you not have welcomed Black students into your school? Do you think it was harder then to see just how wrong these decisions were? So is it is it all just a, a failure of courage? Or is there also a sort of a failure to see as clearly as we might see now? And I guess the question then is, you know, do you think we suffer from some of the same kind of moral confusion now? And people will look at us in the future and say, how in the world could you not have seen that this thing was wrong or that thing was wrong? And, and, and I, I could speak to that because in Bishop Whittingham's case, I really do feel, and also, you know, Dr. Kerford, our first headmaster, I really do believe that the high churchmen of that time, they really felt that they were doing the best that they could do under the circumstances that they were under. And, and again, it was just that, I, that ideal was that they were just, they did not want to cause any further division within the church because the ideal was, is that the church is to be united, not divided. And, you know, they saw how, you know, 
the abolitionist movement was tearing churches apart. You know, how other, you know, social issues that were being talked about were tearing the church apart. And they did not want to be the cause of that. And so, you know, that's why they were like, okay, well, we, we really shouldn't be talking about this because if we do, it's just going to cause this further division. And we don't want to do that. And so I think that they were just trying, you know, to do the best that they could under the circumstances that they were. Like, for instance, it's very clear that St. James, several of the administration who were local to the area, that they were slave owners themselves. And in my research, and also in the research of another Washington County historian, it came to light that Kerford himself was a slave owner. But then there was a certificate, an emancipation certificate that he signed, which talked about, it was about two or three years after he had bought this particular slave, which specifically mentioned that he, that he was emancipating, he was manumitting this particular slave by his original design. And so that particular phrase, by his original design, let us let me know and let others know who saw this, that he had engaged in this is engaged in this for the purpose of freeing them. So he kind of did a behind the scenes way of freeing black slaves. And it was and from records that we saw by 1860, there really were not any slaves left at St. James. And so that let me know that he was just working behind the scenes to just eradicate this institution. And that would make sense, given how Muhlenberg, his great mentor, absolutely detested the institutional slavery, just floored it. And so Kerford was thinking, okay, well, I'm, I'm below the Mason-Dixon line. My student body is majority Southern. How can I go about this in a way that does not bring any division, but at the same time, I can make some impact. And that's how he did it. I think we face the, sometimes people say there's a conflict between unity and justice. Hobart also was very committed to keeping the church together. He did not want, even in the 1820s, for there to be a break off of, let's say, a Southern church, and then the Diocese of New York and Connecticut and others, a high church. He wanted us to stay together. And some have said he would not speak out against slavery for that reason. So therefore, justice should have trumped. But on the other hand, he, he felt was a fundamental Christian tradition. And we we must think about that in, in terms of our relationship with other churches. At what point do we have to hold fast to our position? Or for the sake of the unity of the church, sometimes do we find a way to express our understanding of the Christian faith in a new way? in which we can come together. I was in another podcast earlier this fall, and one speaker was very much opposed to Hobart because he put unity before justice. I was speaking about the importance of unity. So I think this is a debate we need to have growing out of this fall, the elections we've gone through, this Hobart anniversary, and other things happening in our church. Let's have this unity, justice. Can we live with them together? Can we do in our own time, what they might not have been able to do in that earlier time of the 19th right. century. Unity and justice together. I think that's a, a great place to close our conversation today. It's been really fascinating to look at these great figures from the 19th century and then to explore the ways that their patterns can instruct us in the challenge of speaking the truth and building up the unity of the body of Christ today. 
Thanks to both of you for joining us on the Living Church Podcast. It's been a delight to talk over these issues with you. Thank you very much for hosting us. Thank you very much, Father Michael. Really appreciated it. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Living Church Podcast, a ministry of the Living Church Institute. And don't forget to give to TLC. If you're enjoying this podcast, go to livingchurch.org and click donate or head on over to the show notes and do the same. In two weeks, it will be Lent. Yay. And we'll be back here having a most Lenten conversation with the Reverend Dr. Esau McCauley about his new book, Lent. Why is Lent so exciting for people who didn't grow up with it? Is there an obvious relationship between fasting and justice? How does acknowledging sin work in an anxiety-ridden, shame-saturated, fearful culture? Join us. Until then, our producer is Leslie Thompson. I'm Amber Noel, your host, and it's been good to be with you. Peace.